everybody. This is Chess Griffin. Welcome back to Linux Reality. This is episode number 67. And in this episode, we are going to talk about Fedora 7, something that I've been promising for a while and a lot of people have been asking me about to cover Fedora. And uh, so we're going to do it in this episode. First, though, I did want to mention a couple of things. Um, off the top, uh, Slackware, one of my favorite Linux distributions, uh, I did a special episode on Slackware about six months ago, has released a new uh, you know, release candidate of Slackware 12, and uh, it's very, very cool. There's a lot of neat changes under the hood. This is going to be the first version of Slackware that's going to have a default 2.6 kernel. Uh, he's also, uh, Patrick has also updated a lot of you know, all the major packages and added a lot of new things. Like for example, how, which is the service that, well, it does a lot of things, but part of what it does is it enables the ability to sort of, you know, automatically auto mount USB sticks and CD ROMs and all that kind of stuff, you know, fairly common in other distributions. That's now part of Slackware. Uh, KDE has been uh, compiled with how support. It's got the new XFCE 4.4.1, I think. And there's a lot of really neat changes under the hood. I think there's some ability to uh, create USB bootable devices and stuff like that. So uh, check it out. There's a great script out there by Eric Hamleers uh, that lets you mirror uh, the Slackware current tree and create a DVD or a CD-ROM. Uh, and uh, that works really well. That's what I do, and it works great. So uh, do do check that out. I uh, also wanted to thank everyone for the great and positive feedback you all sent me on the interview last week. Uh, it's very appreciated. I'm glad that people enjoyed it, and uh, I've got a few more lined up, and and uh, and I've got I've got some others, some feelers out on some other people as well. So as I said, I'm going to try to kind of intersperse them here and there, uh, and you know, kind of come back to our regular subjects from time to time as well. So. Uh, it should be a good mix, I think. Uh, but I think with that, uh, nothing else really to cover here up front. Let's talk about Fedora 7. Okay, well, I've been playing with Fedora 7, uh, you know, uh, pretty, you know, pretty straight for the last uh, two weeks or so, ever since it came out. And uh, I really like it a lot. I just have to say that up front. But before I get into the details, I thought I'd talk about some of the background. There's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that um, that are new to Linux and, and may not know sort of the history about some things, which is why I always like to kind of cover stuff, you know, with the basics. So uh, the Fedora project is a is a project that's sort of sponsored by Red Hat. So you know, let's talk about Red Hat. Red Hat is a company that's been around a long time. Uh, it's a commercial company. It's a publicly traded company. Uh, it's actually based here in my hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. And in fact, my uh, lug meets over at the at the Red Hat offices. And Red Hat is a. Uh, I mean, they are basically focused, you know, on the on the enterprise Linux area. They they make a, a Linux distribution that's focused for for you know the enterprise and for servers and things like that. But several years ago, I mean, it, during its you know first several years, Red Hat just created a regular Linux distribution like everybody else did. And some people used it in the enterprise and some people used it at home and there were hobbyists and all that. And it was just regular Red Hat Linux. Uh, one of the first Linux distributions I ever tried was Red Hat 7 point something. And, uh, and I really liked it a lot. It was really great. It had a great installer called Anaconda and it just, it was really cool. And it's always been a gnome focused distribution. Um, but after a certain number of years, I think Red Hat probably realized that it was hard for them as a as a company that really wanted to make it big to sort of focus on the enterprise and sort of the community uh, home market. So they did, uh, let's see, Red Hat 8 and then Red Hat 9. And I think after Red Hat 9, they kind of split the desktop apart or the distribution apart. They said, okay, well, we're going to continue to make our enterprise version. And the way Red Hat makes its money is by selling support. Uh, I mean that you you know you purchase the distribution, but what you're really purchasing is the support because Red Hat is a company that really is very focused on the idea of free software. They believe very strongly in it, uh, and so of course they provide the source code to everything that they that they have. And in fact, there are uh, open source or free software versions of the Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, one is called CentOS, which has become very popular. So Red Hat is a very friendly, you know, to the open source and, and free software community. Uh, so when a customer buys the Red Hat Linux, they're really buying the support. And I don't remember the levels of support, but they've got different levels and all that. Um, 
But then, so after, anyway, after Red Hat 9, what they said is that, that you know, we're going to focus on our enterprise stuff, and we're going to turn the, uh, the sort of the community base, the desktop uh, distribution over to the community. We'll provide some support, some infrastructure, you know, websites and hosting and whatever, and, and people. I mean, a lot of Red Hat employees work on Fedora. Uh, so anyway, this so this community project that was branched out it was called Fedora, and uh, uh, so it has been basically a community-run project with some assistance from Red Hat uh, for the last three or four years. And Fedora is 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 supposed to be sort of a little bit more bleeding edge. I mean, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux products are going to be very stable because they're obviously intended for the enterprise and for servers and things like that. So some people view Fedora as sort of a playground or t- you know a test bed. Uh, for the new technologies that will eventually end up in Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And that's probably true. I think I've heard them say that as well. But that doesn't mean everything, of course, is going to go into the to the Enterprise Linux product. It's just that they can kind of pick and choose the stuff that comes out of Fedora and put it back into Red Hat proper. Uh, so the Fedora project, as I said, is kind of run by the community with some assistance from Red Hat in terms of infrastructure and personnel. And it's obviously become very, very popular. Uh, Red Hat has always been an RPM-based distribution as far as its package management goes. Debian uses, you know, Deb packages, same as uh, Ubuntu and Mepis and and a lot of others. Uh, And some other distributions use RPMs, like uh, Mandriva and PC Linux OS and Red Hat and Fedora. Uh, So it's just a different way to, to package things. There's obviously a lot more to it under the hood, but at a very high level, they're just different different types of packages. Uh, and, and so anyway, Fedora has become uh, extremely popular and it's got a huge following and a, an excellent and very vibrant community. The nice thing about Fedora is that it still it supports x86, of course, your regular PC. It supports 64-bit uh, processors, and they also still provide a PPC port for old Power Macs, uh, Power PC uh, computers, old Macintoshes, in other words, before Mac switched to the Intel. And as I said, just like Red Hat, Fedora is very committed to free software. And uh, as an example of this, they do not provide anything out of the box in terms of support for any proprietary codecs like MP3s or DVD playback or anything like that. I remember several years ago when they made that sort of that change. It was right at the beginning of this of this split, if you will, when Fedora first came around. People were just up in arms, and I still see it from time to time. People get upset that Fedora doesn't include MP3 support out of the box. And, you know, that's just their focus. I mean, I think their focus is on providing a product that's made of completely free software. You can certainly add that stuff after the fact, and probably a lot of people do. But they're just not going to provide it by default, and that's just the way they've always been, and I don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. Uh, the other neat thing about Fedora, just from a from a conceptual standpoint, is that there's a lot of emphasis on security, uh, on virtualization, and a lot of really new and kind of neat technologies. You, you see, I think you tend to see that stuff in Fedora first, just as a general rule. Not not always, but as a general rule, you tend to see that uh, in Fedora first, uh, even before other uh, regular community distributions. It, it seems to me. Uh, and one last nice thing about uh, Fedora and uh, and Red Hat in general is that Red Hat has has made a lot of really nice little uh, GUI configuration tools. Uh, I remember these used to be called uh, Red Hat Dash Config Dash something like Samba. So in other words, Red Hat made a, a little a GTK application, a little GUI front end to managing Samba shares. And they have these for a lot of different tools. They have one for Apache. They have one for, I think they've got one for MySQL. I don't remember. They've got a whole host of these little little itty-bitty graphical tools to help you manage uh, a lot of the services and things like that. Now they're called system-config-something, like system-config-samba or system-config-httpd for uh, the Apache web server. And those tools have made it into Fedora. So then, uh, you know, another nice thing about Fedora is that, and it's sort of unique, I'm sure that some of these tools have been brought into other distributions, but it has a lot of these little nice GUI tools to help you manage uh, the machine and manage the services and things like that that you don't often see in, in other distributions. Other distributions have their own tools, like, uh, of course, SUSE has Yast, 
and Man- Mandrake, or I mean, uh, Mandriva has the, the Mandriva control center. And so a lot of those, you know, bits of functionality are included other ways. But I, I really like these little GUI applications. They're very simple. They each do really just one thing, and they do it pretty well, and they, it just makes it very easy to configure these services and, and stuff. So, um, And it, it, Fedora still tends to be a sort of GNOME-centric desktop. Uh, I remember, I think it was Red Hat 8, um, uh, Red Hat introduced the Blue Curve theme, and uh, is a just a you know a window dressing and icons and stuff like that. And what they did was they made it the default theme for both KDE and GNOME. And I think at the time a lot of people were upset by that, and they didn't like KDE sort of being gnomified, if you will. And they preferred KDE to sort of remain you know standard KDE. And there were a lot of well-known KDE developers, and some of them I remember left after after that time. That was back Red Hat eight nine era. Uh, and, you know, Red Hat and Fedora have continued to be a GNOME-centric distribution, like Ubuntu. However, I think that uh, I think Fedora has been really trying to bring KDE back, and I think they're trying to lure KDE developers back. And it seems to me, at least, that the KDE that comes with Fedora is much closer to sort of the default KDE than you may see in other distributions. I know I've never really used Kubuntu, but I've heard a lot of Kubuntu users complain that Kubuntu is not really just KDE on Ubuntu. They've done a lot of things to it, and I don't know what that is. But I've just heard a lot of people complain about Kubuntu, and I think Kubuntu is trying to fix that as well. But, uh, you know, in, in talking about Fedora here, I think Fedora has really done a good job of trying to bring uh, KDE back into the fold and, and, you know, make it much more really up on the same level as GNOME. They still have sort of the same themes. In fact, on my... Um, uh, Fedora 7 machine. I've got both GNOME and KDE, and they do look a lot alike, but they're still, it's still KDE. I mean, it's still different. So, uh, anyway, so Fedora 7 is the latest release of this sort of community run version of Red Hat, and uh, they try to release every six months or so, approximately. Uh, and they used to call it Fedora Core because uh, it, it, they used to have two separate uh, repositories of software. You know how, like Ubuntu, they have, um, you know, what is it like? You know, regular. I can't even remember now off the top of my head, but they've got you know, universe and multiverse. They have these different repositories. Well, Fedora had the same thing, and they called it Core and Extras. And Core is what you got from Fedora, and Extras was a separate repository that you had to configure and then you know bring into the fold if you wanted to install packages from Extra. Uh, well, they, this Fedora 7, they've brought those two separate repositories back together. So there's no longer a separation between core and extras. It's all it, it's been merged. There are still third-party repositories outside of Fedora. Uh, the big three uh, that were big back when I used Red Hat and are still big today are DAG, uh, Fresh RPMs, and uh, Livna. And I'll put links to those three repositories in the show notes. But so you can, you know, if you need to get MP3 support or DVD playback or codecs or just additional software that may not be included in core or extras, these third-party repositories uh, pretty much have everything that you would need. Uh, And I've really taken a close look at the package selection in Fedora with those third-party repositories. And it's, I mean, everything that I've ever looked for is in there. So I don't know in terms of numbers how it compares to Ubuntu, but I imagine it's got to be pretty close just based on the sheer number of packages. The other nice thing about Fedora 7 uh, is that in previous releases of Fedora, they had, uh, you know, they would have, they would re- they, when they released a new version, they would have five CDs and a, and a DVD. And so you could either download the DVD at three plus gigs or several of the CDs. Now, I'm pretty sure that it was the case that you never needed to install or download all the CDs. I think kind of like Slackware comes on four CDs. Well, really, it's only it's really the first one uh, for Slackware. The second one has KDE, and uh, CDs three and four have just the source code. And I think Fedora was the same way. Out of the five CDs, I imagine two or three of them were source code. So I think you generally only needed to download the first one, two, or maybe three CDs. But but in this case, with Fedora 7, what they've done is they've released a DVD that has everything, just like before, but they've now released live CDs, and you know, just like Ubuntu has. They've got, and in fact, what's nice is they've got a live CD that's got GNOME, and they've got a live CD that's got KDE. So you can pick between those two, and of course, you can always 
install the other desktop later on. But in terms of what you prefer first, you've got a choice between a, a, a GNOME CD and a KDE CD. And like with Ubuntu, these live CDs are fully functional. I mean, they you can test out everything. Everything runs right off the CD. And you can click a little icon on the desktop to install it onto your hard drive. And it, the installer... When I ran the live CD, I ran the live GNOME CD, and then I installed it onto my machine, and it works great. It also uses Anaconda, which is that same installation script that they've always had. And Anaconda, Anaconda is a very nice installer. Uh, it, it really is very straightforward, very easy to follow. I like the partitioning tool that's, that's available in Anaconda. I think the, the partitioning tool in the Ubuntu, you know, when you click... To install the live CD, I think that partitioner is a little bit tricky sometimes. I mean, for people that are kind of new to installing Linux, I think that one is a little tricky. But the one in Anaconda, I think, is very straightforward and simple. Um, and the other nice thing I noticed is that several years ago, the bootloader selection where you could configure a custom bootloader was kind of hidden away. And now it's much easier to find. And that has been important to me because I usually have one distribution installed on a machine that will have the bootloader. And for any other distros I install, I don't want the bootloader written to the master boot record. I like to have the bootloaders written to the root partition of each you know, second and third distro on my machine. And then I modify the bootloader uh, that, that is on the master boot record to include you know, extra stanzas for the other distros. And so I like to be able to configure and customize where the bootloader goes. And it used to be kind of hard to do, and now it's a lot easier. Uh, but it's a very fast live CD, and the installation is unbelievably fast. I think it's, it's, it seemed to, to me faster than Feisty Fawn. Uh, it installed in under 10 minutes. I mean, it was like eight minutes, uh, and the whole thing was installed onto my uh, computer. As far as the look and feel, you know, obviously that's a very subjective thing. I think it looks great. I think the artwork in Fedora 7 is beautiful, and uh, I like the icons. I just think it looks very clean. And, you know, some people complain about the brown in Ubuntu, which I actually never – it never really bothered me. I, I kind of like the brown in, in Ubuntu, but – Obviously, you can change any of that, so that's very easy. It's not really a big deal, but uh, but it does look very nice out of the box. Uh, so I ran the install, and I installed it onto my hard drive. No problems whatsoever. I rebooted and logged right in, and the boot process with Fedora is also looks fantastic. You know, they've got a nice uh, grub uh boot splash that kind of matches the general theme of the whole desktop, and then when you when you boot into it, you know, it's got like a little you know, progress bar as it's booting. And it just looks really, really nice. I mean, it's, it really looks sharp. I think the one in Ubuntu looks good as well, but I think the Fedora one is probably the best looking one I've seen. And it logs you, logs you in. And uh, once you get to the regular main default desktop, it's pretty straightforward GNOME. I mean, if you're used to Ubuntu or other distributions, it's very straightforward. There are some interesting little tweaks that I thought I'd, I'd mention about sort of the default layout. And in fact, as I'm doing this, I have got uh, both Ubuntu Feisty Fawn on one machine, and I've got Fedora 7 on another machine. And, of course, I've got my regular desktop as a third machine in front of me. So I've got three, <laughs> three machines going at one time as I'm actually recording this. And I'm looking at the menus. And what's interesting about Fedora 7 is they've tweaked the default no menus just a little bit. And I like it a lot. As you probably know, if you use GNOME, you've got three basic menus in the upper left corner. You've got Applications, Places, and System. And that's the same on both. The Applications menus pretty much the same. You've got seven or eight little categories, and then you've got an, uh, a separate one, Add Remove Software. Uh, the Places menu is slightly different because what Fedora has done is they have included folders in the home desktop that are automatically created for documents, music, pictures, videos, and download. And it's sort of similar to what you see on uh, Mac OS X and Windows. You know how in Windows in, the home, in your home folder, your home directory, there's also like a My Documents and that kind of thing. Well, they've got that created here in Fedora. They've got documents, uh, music, pictures, videos, and downloads. So that's kind of that's neat. But what's really cool, I think, is what they've done to the system menu. The default system menu in Ubuntu, I mean, it's, you know, it's got preferences administration and then stuff like help and about and, and log out but in the preferences and administration submenus under under system in ubuntu and in every other distribution and including regular default gnome 
if you go into preferences under system, you know, there's a long list of stuff. And on one of my laptops, it's a ThinkPad X40. It's got a small screen. It's got 1120 or uh, 1024 by 768. And that thing rolls off the bottom. So I've got to scroll down and you can scroll past the bottom of the screen. Well, in Fedora, under Preferences, they've broken up all those tools into separate submenus. So you've got another layer of submenus. You've got personal, look and feel, internet and network, hardware and system. And uh, they've done uh, – no, they haven't done the same thing in administration because there aren't as many tools in administration. But I like how they've broken that up in Preferences. That does make it a lot easier to – I mean, I like how they've categorized it and uh, split it up. makes it much easier to navigate, I think. Uh, so that's that's nice. Otherwise, it's pretty standard. It, it includes network manager for log for managing your network connections, both wired and wireless, and it's got the clock and all of that kind of stuff that you would typically see in the upper bar on a GNOME uh, uh, desktop in, with any distribution. As far as uh, the packages go, uh, there's not a whole lot of changes with other distros. I, I noticed that they do not include OpenOffice like Ubuntu does, but instead. They include other tools, like they include Abbey Word, I think Numeric maybe for the spreadsheet. They've got Invest Chart. Uh, and so they, they basically have an office suite made up of separate tools. It's sort of the GNOME office. Uh, GNOME is trying to create an office made out of these separate tools, and that's essentially what they've done here with Fedora. Uh, so that's one little interesting uh, difference, I guess. But the other basic applications, you know, it comes with Firefox and Evolution and uh, you know, it does come with the new version of Pigeon, which is the the old instant messenger client, used to be known as Game. Uh, they've got a BitTorrent client, and uh, they've got Totem. I think it comes with Rhythmbox. I think those are the same as on Ubuntu. So, for the most part, the default package selection is roughly equivalent. Now, about packages, uh, as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, uh, Fedora uses RPMs, and so their package management system and their tools are slightly different. Uh, their command line tool is called YUM, and uh, I think it stand, I think it's one of those recursive acronyms. It's I think it stands for Yet Another Update Manager or something. And I think it was originally um, developed by the uh, lug, one of our other local lugs over at Duke, I believe. There was a big Red Hat lug over at Duke for several years, and I think they were the ones that originally developed YUM. I might be wrong about that, but I seem to remember downloading sort of early versions of yum many years ago from that website. But anyway, uh, yum is sort of the equivalent of apt-get or aptitude at the command line. Uh, so you could run, you know, yum install package name and it will download and install it. They've also got something called pyroot or pyroot. It's spelled P I R U T. And that is their basic, that's their package manager. If you go into add, remove software under applications, that's the application that runs. So that would be sort of equivalent to Synaptic on a Debian-based distribution. And then there's also something called PUP, and it stands for Package Updater. And that is like the, that's the little applet kind of thing that sits in the taskbar that notifies you of updates, and you click on it, and it will run little update tool. So that's sort of equivalent to that little update tool that's available in Ubuntu, you know, that sits up there in the taskbar. Um, the other... Uh, you know, another nice thing about Fedora 7 is I played around with Fedora 6, I think, and and I've heard other people complain that Yum used to be, is really slow. You know, when you run Yum on the command line, Yum update or Yum install, it takes a long time to go to the mirrors and download an updated list of packages and resolve dependencies and all that. And it was. I mean, I ran Fedora 6. I mean, I tested it out, and it was really slow. I mean, it really, really was. And now it's much faster, much faster. It really is almost equivalent to running apt-get. It's probably just a touch slower, but, I mean, it's hardly noticeable. And so uh, that, I think, issue has been solved. Uh, there are lots and lots of packages to install if you enable the, uh, you know, well, it's the extras are now enabled, but if you enable any of the third-party repositories, as I said, you can include, I mean, there's lots of different packages you can easily install, including Barrel. And speaking of Barrel, uh, just like with Feisty Fawn, it, uh, Fedora 7 does come with, I guess it's Compiz by default. If you go into System, Preferences, and, of course, the new submenu, Look and Feel, you'll see Desktop Effects, which is the same little simple Desktop Effects GUI that you get in Feisty Fawn. You know, a little box pops up that just says, 
you know, do you want to, you know, enable desktop effects? You can click that. And then you really have two options, you know, the wobbly windows and the cube. And those are your only choices. So this um, Fedora 7 has the same thing, and it works perfectly. I've got it installed on my, I mean, it, I mean, I got it enabled on my uh, machine that has Fedora 7, and it works perfectly. And this is on an ATI machine, so it's using the open source ATI drivers, and the wobbly windows and the cube work fine. I didn't have to do anything at all to make that work. And so that's pretty cool. And let's see, what else here? A um, couple other new things in Fedora 7, which are very cool, and I've played around with them some and have some mixed uh, success. The first one is something called fast user switching. And this is sort of something I've seen this on the Macintosh. If you've got two different users on your machine, and I created a second user just to test this out, if they're logged in, let's say you've got both users logged in, they share this machine, uh, you can easily switch back and forth between the two. And uh, so if one person's got some stuff open and they don't want to have to log out, which would, of course, you know, meaning they'd have to close all their windows and everything, you can just switch to the other user graphically. And it works really well. Works great. Very cool. Uh, another thing that's new in Fedora 7 is this thing called the Reviser tool. Now, this is a, a GUI application. You've got to install it separately. You just can just do yum install uh, Reviser. And this lets you create your own ISO image. And this is very cool. Uh, I've created live CDs with other distributions just on my own. And in other distributions, you've got a, it's using scripts and various things. Um, the Slacks live CD, which is based on Slacks, Slackware, has a very easy way to create your own customized live CD. You basically just put the packages you want in a certain directory, run a script, and it does it. So it works pretty well. Um, I think I, several years ago I made a custom Nopic CD, but this is amazing. Um, unfortunately, it crashed for me when I was going through it, so I didn't get to finish it, but I've read a lot about it, and it sounds like other people have had success, and I think they're updating this little tool fairly frequently. Uh, but it looks like all that you do, I got partway through the process. You basically select the packages you want to have included. You can select whether or not it's a live CD or not, and there's some other options, and then you just click OK, and it it creates an ISO for you that you can then burn on OCD and reboot with. And it's cool. I mean, you can like set up your default users, your default look and feel and stuff. And it's pretty sweet. I think that's something that's going to be added very quickly to other distributions. Cause it looks like it's, it, that's a really neat way to create your own custom distribution. And then the last thing that I did get a chance to play with is uh Fedora. As I said, one of the things they focus on is virtualization. They include um, if you install it, you've got to install it separately, Zen, which is a, there's a lot to Zen, but it's a, basically it's a virtual machine manager. I mean, it's a, it's a virtual machine layer. Uh, I, I like Zen. I actually use, uh, I have a VPS, a, a, a server and it runs on Zen. And uh, there's a lot of VPSs out there that use other technologies, something called Virtuoso and something else called OpenVZ. And and those are very nice and easy to install, I think, from the server side. The one downside to them is that they, while they're separate machines that you create with, say, Virtuoso, they kind of share the same kernel, and there's some other slight limitations to it. With, with, um, with Zen, it's almost like each virtual machine really is its own separate machine. You can... You can make hard limitations. You can allocate RAM to Zen virtual machines that do not um, overlap or conflict. In other words, with other virtual machines like um, Virtuoso, they say you get a certain amount of RAM, and then you have this something called burstable RAM, which means you can get extra RAM if necessary. And so there's some a little bit of sharing of resources, and I'm kind of talking about this at a high level, I know. But with Zen, you can really almost make separate literally separate machines that, that do not have any overlap whatsoever. And so I like Zen from that perspective, which is why I always look for Zen VPSs. And uh, so anyway, going back to Fedora, they include Zen. You can create, you basically have to install the virtualization packages, and there's several different packages. And it, one of the things it includes is a, is a separate kernel because you've got to have a Zen-enabled kernel. So it installs that kernel and installs a little graphical tool to help you manage and create these virtual machines. You reboot Fedora onto the, using the Zen kernel, and then you can go into this GUI tool and create virtual machines. And it works great. It's so cool. And there's a little uh, configuration tool that you can use to monitor your machines. And 
it's just amazing to see how this works out of the box. You know, there's other virtual machine technologies out there. I've talked about VirtualBox before, which is I've been playing around with as well, which is great. But Zen is very cool, and um, that's a really nice feature that's in Fedora 7 that I think is pretty pretty darn unique. And uh, and then the last thing about Fedora 7, sort of the unique thing, is its emphasis on security and SE Linux. SE Linux is... Uh, something that I think has been created by Red Hat as a way to really lock down the machines. You can basically, in a nutshell, the way it works is you can create um, profiles for different applications, and you can say what applications are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And so you can, if an application tries to do something that it can't do, it won't, it won't work. It's almost like sandboxing each individual application. Uh, and uh, so you can create different policy levels for different users and all this kind of stuff. And I've played around with it a little bit. I haven't done too much with it, but um, it's something that I think is, is, would be really cool, and I can understand why Red Hat has developed it. I, I can imagine if you're going to run Red Hat in a corporate enterprise or on a corporate desktop, you would like to be able to really lock things down such that you know if Firefox tries to do something it's not supposed to do, you can shut it down and whatnot. So uh, very cool stuff. I'll put a bunch of links to some Fedora resources. There's a great forum called fedoraforum.org. There's also an FAQ called fedorafaq.org. It hasn't been updated for Fedora 7, at least as of today when I checked it, but it should be soon. And it's kind of like that Ubuntu guide where they kind of tell you how to do everything you can imagine. I mean, that's what the Fedora FAQ does. And there's a lot of really good articles and reviews about Fedora 7 that I'll include as well. So anyway, I just think Fedora 7 is a is a great release. I think the Fedora project is is doing great things. You know, I think one thing people may ask is, well, why would I run Fedora over, say, Ubuntu? And I heard Max uh, Spivak talk on the Linux Link tech show about that. And, you know, his answer was something along the lines of, you know, we, you know, if you want a distribution that's made of entirely free software that has some real cutting edge technologies in terms of virtual machines and security and things like that, then that's what Fedora provides. And I do think they provide a unique distribution. And I do think I do think they set themselves apart with those really neat features. And I, you know, uh, the free software thing is something that obviously each individual person's got to decide whether or not that's important to them. It is becoming increasingly important to me, um, the idea of running free software. And I like the fact that Fedora has has focused on that and that they're not including proprietary kernel modules and drivers and things like that out of the box, but yet make it relatively easy to install after the fact. Uh, so, you know, uh, it seems like more and more uh, distributions these days are moving away from free software and are including a bunch of stuff like, you know, all that closed uh, proprietary stuff. And so it's nice to have some distributions out there that are kind of sticking to the free software model just to provide an alternative for those who, who uh, you know, feel that that's important to them. So that is Fedora 7. That's a take a you know, look at it and uh, the history and, you know, some of the cool new features of Fedora 7, I highly encourage you to check it out. I, I recommend it very much. I think it's an excellent distribution with some really cool things. So let's get on to a listener tip from Will. Hi, this is Will Simpson from Moscow, Idaho, reaching out to all of our friends at the Linux Reality Show. I'd like to share a quick listener tip on the command gnome-open. This is a command used in the terminal and it's used to open an application in the GUI environment and load a document. The way this works is this command opens an item specified on the command line with the preferred gnome application for that file slash mime type. Now what does that mean? And how is that used? Well first as an example, if you have a file and the file is named file.txt, you would use the command gnome-open space file.txt. What would happen is your preferred application that you have specified for text documents would open in a GUI window and it would automatically load the file file.txt. This is incredibly handy if you're accustomed to and prefer to edit documents in, for example, gedit or genie 
or any other text editor as opposed to on the command line using uh, VI or uh, Emacs. This will automatically load the document in the viewer right from the command line and set you off uh, on your editing tasks. Some of the other ways that this command can be used, gnome-open space google.com, for example, or any URL, will open the website in your preferred browser. gnome-open mail to colon somewhat-example.com will open up your preferred mail client and start a message to uh, that particular email address. Uh, gnome-open space dot this opens up Nautilus in the current directory you're in. Uh, you can specify the directory you want to open in Nautilus merely by specifying that directory on the command line something like gnome-open dot slash documents slash and that will open up the documents directory in Nautilus right from the command line. Again, any document that has been specified in GNOME or uh, as a file or MIME type preferred document uh, this is uh, usable with. Well that's it for my listener tip. I look forward to more great shows from Chess Griffin at Linux Reality. It's John from Fairfield, Connecticut. I just want to drop you a line and say hello. Um, I'm having a little trouble. Maybe I can get a little help with my NSLU2. I downloaded the Debian uh, bin file and I flashed it using up, upslug2 and I think I screwed it up where now when I turn on the slug it doesn't come up with an IP address at all. I can't find it on my own network. I, I've tried reflashing it a couple of times and it still won't come up. I've scanned my ports with uh, Nmap and it doesn't even show it as a device. And I don't remember if there's a way to reverse it and go back to the regular Linksys um, flash. And if so, how do we do that, more or less? Uh, let me know if you have any thoughts or suggestions on this. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Well, John, uh, thanks for sending that in. I actually responded to John by email, but I uh, wanted to play this just in case anybody else was running into these issues. Uh, the, the one thing I asked him, I haven't heard back from him yet, actually, is that it sounds like um, because he can't find it on the network, I wonder if he used the regular Debian firmware, uh, the one from Debian, um, versus the one that included the non-free Ethernet driver. You may remember I mentioned that episode. There are two different versions of the Debian firmware. The regular one that's available from Debian uh, that works fine. It's just that it doesn't include a piece of non-free software to enable the Ethernet port on the slug because the hardware that's in the slug, that Ethernet port requires non-free software, non-free driver. There's also a third-party firmware that's the exact same as the Debian firmware, it's just that it includes the non-free driver. And that way you can use the Ethernet port. There is a way to use the regular Debian one with the, without the non-free software. It's just that you've got to get a separate USB Ethernet device that has free drivers and use that as opposed to the built-in Ethernet port. So, you know, if you're going to use if you're going to use the Debian firmware on the slug, as opposed to one of the others like the Slug OS or the Upslung or whatever, if you're going to go the Debian route, you got to make sure you get the one with the non-free software if that's the way you want to go. Uh, I had linked to a installation guide on installing Debian on the slug that goes into all of this, and I definitely encourage people to read that. I think I'd gotten some other emails from people, and I think some folks hadn't looked at that guide because that guide is really helpful. It's very easy to read, very easy to follow. It tells you everything you need to do from A to Z on how to install Debian on the slug. Uh, the other thing to think about is, well, first of all, as far as going back to the Linksys firmware, if you want to revert, yes, that's very easy to do. If you go to the 
nslu2-linux.org project website and look in the FAQ, there is an FAQ on how to revert to the Linksys firmware, and it's very easy. All that you do is you download the, the Linksys firmware and you use Upslug2 to flash it back on. And then it's then it's right back to where you were. Um, I've never done that. Um, well, I did actually on one slug, somebody else's slug, and that worked fine. But uh, I have flashed my slug several times using the Debian firmware and using the free and the non-free one, and it it's never been a problem. People are always worrying about flashing the, your devices and bricking them. And yes, that's a possibility. And all of this is you know your mileage may vary, but I have never had a problem, and I've. I don't think it's that common for people to to run into a problem that can't be reversed. The other issue that I think with the slug is that what's helpful is as far as setting the IP is if this is not necessary because I didn't do this, but other people have sent me emails saying what they did was they went into the Linksys um, web-based interface first before flashing anything. And they set the device to a static IP that they remembered, you know, and then they flash the device and the static IP that you pick that you set up it 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 sticks. In other words, they it probably writes that somewhere on the flash RAM or something because when they rebooted and put the Debian firmware on there, it still had the same IP. The IP didn't change, so that's an option as well. Uh, but definitely, I recommend that folks you know read that installation guide, make sure they get the right firmware. And the other thing is there were some posts in the forums about installing on the slug. It takes a while, and you've got to give it some time, I think, is that it can take several hours uh, to do. Um, and, and the last point I'd mentioned, I mentioned this during that episode, is that make sure you make a big enough swap partition because it needs it. It needs to be at least 128 megabytes swap, um, and it can be larger. I think mine's just 128 megabytes, and mine installs fine. But... Um, you, you know, you can always make it a little bit bigger. If you've got, if you're putting everything onto an external hard drive that's 30 gigs or something, I mean, giving it 128 or 256 or even 512 in swap is, you know, it's not going to set you back all that much. So, I hope that helps, John. Thank you so much for sending that in. Here's an email from Paul. Paul says, "Love the show. Uh, hard to leave a voice message at this time as I'm on the road. Anyway, I'm a Kiwi from New Zealand, and I heard you mention on your listener feedback." while I was uh, running some of the older shows and heard a guy from Taranga, <laughs> and he tells me how to pronounce it. He says it's pronounced Teoranga. I guess that's right. Uh, anyway, he was asking about Music Studio installs. Maybe you can mention one Ubuntu Studio at ubuntustudio.org. Yes, that's uh, thank you for that. That's A couple people have sent me emails about Ubuntu Studio, um, and that's that's a new, I think it's a new distribution based on Ubuntu that's got all the multimedia and video and audio stuff kind of included by default. So, uh, and then he goes on, love the show. We'll be interested if you did something on managing your own web server, dedicated or co-location, co-location at a data center. Um, anyway, great show. Re listen to things all the time. and can't wait for more episodes. Paul, uh, Kiwi living in Singapore and traveling a lot in Asia. Paul, thanks for the email. Good, good idea on the, um, on the Ubuntu stuff. Again, thanks again, Ubuntu studio. I'm not sure about doing the, the managing a server at a data center, uh, I mean, I have my VPS. I guess you know you could say that's at a data center. It's not my. It's not a literally a separate physical machine, but it is a VPS on Zen. But I don't know. You know that may be something I get to at some point. I don't know. That's um, it may be a little bit much because there's probably not many people that that run their own servers at a data center. But uh, I do appreciate that feedback. Here's an email from Davey. And this is a good one. This is on the slug. He says, super podcast about the NSLU2. I have had an NSLU2 kind of sitting around for a while, never took real advantage of it. I've been around using Linux for a long time, but still consider myself a beginner. I decided to take the plunge and put Debian on my old NSLU2. After correcting my dumb mistakes, the install went like a slow piece of cake. <laughs> now I feel, my, feel like my unit is, is on steroids. Awesome. To help correct the dumb mistakes I made, I have a few tips. First, download the original firmware from Linksys in case you are impatient like me and you want to abort the install. After the abort, the system could not let me log back in, so I upslugged the original system back to spec and reformatted the hard drive, then I, then I restarted the install. Let me pause right there. Yeah, see, that's exactly what I was saying. You just get that uh, original firmware, use upslug to put that on the device instead of Debian, and reboot, and you should be back to where you were. Let's see, number two... Um, he says, during the install, I redid the partition map so that the swap at least 128 megs partition was at the beginning of the drive and the root partition was installed after that. Do not be afraid to scroll down to get the save option. 
Number three, Chess's tip on using Nmap was a great help in realizing that the unit now used DHCP to get an address instead of the original static IP address. Your DHCP table in your router can show this also. It would not hurt to run Nmap anyway to see what your systems look like to the network. And he has an example, Nmap 192.168.1. Asterisks, and then you can output that you know, using a greater than sign, you know, logfile.txt. Thanks for another great podcast. But uh, thanks, Davey. He says that uh, his device did revert back to DHCP rather than static. So I guess it just kind of depends on how things go. But uh, those are some good tips. Here's an email from Brandon. Brandon, hi, Chess. I wrote a while back to mention my use of your podcast to help with some of the administrators on the units I support get familiar with Linux. I've been catching up lately, and I've enjoyed your home server episodes. I recently came into possession of a cast-off Dell PowerEdge 2600, a nice server. I'm still playing musical distro on it. I've yet to settle on one that has the features I want. Ubuntu has become a standard on my desktop machine, save for one pastored stepchild of a desktop running Vista, simply to play games on and use the Windows software I need for work. I've had Fedora, CentOS, and Ubuntu on the server already, but I wanted a more server-centric OS. And despite my familiarity with Red Hat, I consistently find myself missing, missing apt when I'm using it. I'm just going to install Debian on it and leave it be. My only issue with the Dell is while it's nice to have a dual hot swappable power supplies and a full hot swappable RAID 5, along with 2 gigs of RAM and dual Xeon processors, it sounds like a jet engine in my apartment and is, of course, quite power hungry. I'd like to thank you for your NSLU2 episode. I'd heard about it in the past, but as things go, totally forgot about it. Even though my friends joke that I live in an NOC, Network Operation Center, I do shut off many of my systems to keep, to keep the power bill down. The NSLU2 really sounds perfect to take over for the servers that I do leave online 24-7. Thanks for reminding me that it's out there. I enjoy the show. Keep up the great work from Brandon. Cool, Brandon. Thanks very much. Yes, the NSLU2 is a really cool device. I love it. Scott, hi, Chess. I enjoy the show. I heard you mention Bash Potter in one episode, but I decided to try it out. I could never connect to the site to download it, but found HPotter instead and have been using it. Anyway, it's been really cool using it and a couple of other non-GUI programs. Although I've just started using Linux, I find myself spending more and more time in a terminal and would love to hear a show discussing different command line slash terminal programs for common tasks like getting podcasts, calendars, etc. Thanks for the work you put into the podcast. Keep up the great work, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott. And yeah, I've, I've had several episodes talking about command line tools and scripting and various things. So I definitely, you know, go back and listen to some of those older episodes. As far as Bash Potter, well, first of all, I've never heard of H Potter, so I don't know anything about that. But yeah, Bash Potter was originally written by Link from the Linux Link Tech Show. And I think his original Bash Potter site is down as he's moving sites. But um, I've mentioned that I have a, a sort of a user-contributed version on my site that you can check out. There's st- plenty of links about it in the forums, in the Linux Reality forums. Um, and the, and it's, it's actually become very popular for some reason. It gets downloaded a lot. The, I think the nice thing about the, the user-contributed version that I put together was it incorporated some stuff from other people as well as some things I did. And it has a lot of new features, like you can download just the first episode. You can sort of run it and, and sort of do a catch-up where it just catches up, catches up all the names, but it doesn't actually download anything. Uh, you can run it in a cron job. You can, there's a lot of different things you can do, do to it. And in fact, I'm tweaking it right now to get it to remove spaces from file names because apparently some podcasts are uh, people put spaces in the file names, which kind of breaks things sometimes. So I've got that fixed as well. So Uh, Feel free to check that out. Uh, I think you might enjoy that. And the last email here is from Kurt, and he says, I'm using Podcatcher from Linux in cron underscore one mode so that I get each podcast in sequence each time I run Podcatcher. I'm not not familiar with Podcatcher, but he says it it skips session number 32 of the OGS and tried to fetch opera.com instead. And he goes on to say that basically he was having trouble downloading some old episodes. And I mentioned his email here just because I get this occasionally, and this is the problem with, with Libsyn, which is the service I use to distribute the podcast. Libsyn is great because it's a really low flat fee and takes care of all the downloads, and I don't have to worry about bandwidth at all. Bandwidth problems are just not a concern at all. Um, but occasionally, the Libsyn archive servers get messed up and people get wrong downloads and stuff like that. That happens occasionally, and occasionally an episode will be missing from the feed. But if you give it a day or two, it usually comes back. That's just, you know, uh, that's just par for the course, I guess, with Libsyn. I mean, their service is so cheap. I think I pay $10 a month or something like that. And, again, I don't have to worry about bandwidth at all. 
uh, but it works great when it does work, and, and which is 98% of the time. So I just, you know, Kurt, what I would do is check it out again, maybe rerun it again, and you can, of course, always download things uh, individually as well. So uh, all that stuff is there up on the website. And I think that's going to do it for this week. Thanks, everybody. Time to wrap it up. Okay, everybody. Well, that was my little talk about Fedora 7. Uh, for all you Fedora fans out there, I apologize. It's been so long in coming, but I hope that I did it justice. <laughs> it's a great distribution, and I really like some of the things it stands for and some of the technologies that go into Fedora. It's very cutting edge, very cool. And uh, plus, you know, I know folks, uh, you know, through my lug that work at Red Hat that work on Fedora, and they've got really good people over there who really care about the Linux community and doing the right thing. So uh, there's a lot to be said for Fedora. It's great stuff. I encourage you to check it out. Let's see. Please uh, send me uh, email feedback to linuxreality at gmail.com. And I've also got some uh, uh, you know listener hotlines that you can call in or you can use Gizmo and look for my Gizmo name, which is just Linux Reality. And all that good contact information is on linuxreality.com slash contact. Also, please check out the forums, linuxreality.com slash forums, as well as the IRC channel. It's uh, hash linuxreality on irc.freednode.net. I think uh, we're, we might have another interview next week, and then we're going to probably do another distribution review. We've got some other cool things coming up. And I also uh, have an announcement, a, a great announcement, very exciting, and I'll probably be and I'll probably be mentioning in a couple of weeks, maybe around the 1st of July. So um, I'll let you know more about that soon. So in the meantime, take care, everyone, and have a great week and a great weekend. Happy Father's Day. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been Episode 67 of Linux Reality. See you later.